Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books in African Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Elisa Prosperitiv. Achimata School is one of Ghana's most well-known secondary schools. Opened in 1927, Achimoto was the fruit of a particular moment in Gold Coast history. It was a unique institution built as a model colonial secondary school that was meant to combine the very best in British and African tradition. Instead, what really happened at Achimota, says our guest today, was the creation of a new culture all its own. Today we are speaking with Shoko Yamada about her 2018 book, Dignity of Labor for African Leaders, the Formation of Education Policy in the British Colonial Office and Achimoto School on the Gold Coast. Shoko is a professor of comparative education and African studies at the Graduate School of International Development at Nagoya University in Japan. Shoko Yamada, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. So let's begin at the beginning. In the 90s, before you started your dissertation on which this book is based, uh, you were working in the development uh, policy space. So how did you get involved in that and what was that landscape like? Okay. Well, um, in the 1990s, I was uh, working as a specialist of international education development uh, in a consultant firm. And during that time, uh, in 1990, there was a big international conference called Education for All International Development Conference that was held in Jomtien, Thailand. And more than 200 national representatives and international organizations have attended and signed unanimously and six international goals in the field of education were agreed. And one of them, the primary goal of it was to make primary education universally accessible for all children around the world. Then what does it mean for the uh, people working in the field of international development? They started to establish schools in countries uh, which didn't have high uh, enrollment rate in the primary school. So that brought me to many African countries as an expert of education. Then uh, I was very young, to, uh, 25 or 26, but uh, I went to many countries and each time I went there, I interviewed local community members. Uh, what is the issue of education in your community? But uh, they are already informed that uh, if they answer the uh, interview of me in a very successful way, they will get scores. So, so that's why they always say that score is a need. Score is necessary. We, we, we need the uh, score and teachers for our children. It was almost like unanimous voices. And then I started to feel that this is something wrong. You know, the aid projects may be very important thing and that rights of education is important thing for children, of course. But at the same time, there are so uh, big population in the uh, countries I visit uh, who haven't attended school in the parents' generation. And the school education is not so common practices at that time. Then uh, what is the meaning of education 
for them? Do they send their children for the sake of knowledge? Or do they want school for the promotion or for the uh, uh, urban life or for cash income? I didn't understand why people are so much rushing to the school construction. Then one morning when I was in Guinea, I woke up in the hotel and then I felt that this is not something I want to do. I don't want to correct the unanimous voices of the villagers, so-called villagers' voices, uh, which is somehow percolated by the, the politics of uh, international education development. I really want to look into the history of education in this community, how school started in this uh, country and in this society. The school history was not long anyway, because uh, there is a, a long tradition of oral transmission of knowledge. So the uh, institutionalized school itself is a colonial uh, product. So that's why I, I thought that now I want to understand the meaning of knowledge in this community, in this society in Africa. Then to understand that, the first thing I need to do is to know how school education started here and what is the difference of sending children to school and learning knowledge in the community. Well, as a trained historian, I can only wish that many, many, many more people working in the space of development ask themselves those series of questions. How did these institutions uh, emerge and what are their legacies? So you're interested in this question of the history of schooling in order to really better grasp what you're seeing mm -hmm. in your own work in the contemporary development space. Mm -hmm. And you go to Indiana University. Yes. So what was the topic of your dissertation? How did you come to it? Um, well, uh, originally, I was not very sure exactly what kind of topic I wanted, but I, I, I knew that I want to write something about education in West Africa because uh, West Africa was the most frequent site uh, for me to work uh, before going to the PhD program. So uh, without having any particular idea about dissertation research project, anyway, I decided to go to Ghana for looking for some ideas of dissertation project. And I went to the library of University of Ghana. Uh, and then uh, that library had uh, uh, some collections of books about the history of education in Africa and Ghana. Well, the collection was not very new, but uh, uh, for older uh, history, there were more information at that time. Then I encountered one book about Gugisberg, the uh, governor Gugisberg, and how he contributed the education of the Ghanaian population during the colonial time. So that encounter uh, was the starting point for me to make it my dissertation project. It, for anyone who knows uh, Ghana, to be reading a text of Gugisberg in the Balm Library of Lagan, thinking mm -hmm. about Achimota, it's almost like the, you know, kind of colonial, post-colonial trifecta mm -hmm. of, uh, of higher education. Right. right. 
Okay, so so we have this this topic and your kind of you know unique perspective and approach to this topic, and you defend your dissertation in 2003. Mm-hmm. But the book that we're talking about, The Dignity of Labor for African Leaders, it comes out only in 2018. <laughs> yes, it took a long time. Well, of course, I had some uh, wish of publishing it as a book uh, right after defending my dissertation. But uh, well, publishing a historiography of Africa is not very easy. Uh, The market is not very big. So, and, and right after the dissertation, I had to go back to Japan. My scholarship expired. Well, actually, uh, half an hour, uh, half a year before the uh, submission of dissertation, actually, the uh, scholarship was ended. So I survived with a saving. And as soon as uh, I got the degree, I had to start looking for a job. Then uh, the easiest place for me to look for a job was to come back to Japan. So I started to work as a a postdoc scholar in Hiroshima University. That was the first job after PhD. And uh, when I was looking for a job and uh, asking for advice uh, from people, somebody told me that, oh, you chose a history of Africa for your dissertation topic. That might be academic suicide, (laughs) you know? Uh, it, it's not going to lead you anywhere. You know, uh, in Japan, uh, very few people might be interested in history and Africa, you know, the uh, combination of these two words of Africa and history, that is not going to lead you anywhere. That was uh, something I was told. And well, also- I will interrupt you to say, mm-hmm. our audience is here to prove otherwise. The combination of Africa and history is mm-hmm. very, very interesting <laughs> yes, yes. to thousands of people. Right, yeah. After uh, many years, I have met many interesting people, scholars uh, who are interested in the history of colonial education in Africa. So I don't think the advice I got at that time was correct. But anyway, I was uh, uh, desperate to find a job. And then um, so I felt that for the time being, I should stop doing history. That was the decision I made in 2003. Another thing I felt was that then if I stop pursuing history, however much it is interesting, then uh, let's uh, reflect on the original cause of myself to, uh, to have gone to the PhD program. That was the day, the morning in Guinea that I was working as a development uh, expert, but I was not happy with that uh, framework of work. And uh, I wanted to dig the deeper questions so that we can make sense of the contemporary developmental issues more clearly and critically. So to be able to do that, then I have to demonstrate audiences that what I'm doing is relevant to what they are interested in. So that's how I shifted rather drastically for other people's uh, uh, view uh, to the contemporary issues. But with the hope that one day, 
people would know that what I have been saying about history is fundamentally relevant to what I'm writing about the contemporary issues. So that made the, uh, the, the historical study in my dissertation to be a lifelong uh, project for me. <laughs> Fantastic. And so this will kind of help realize this goal. So I'm delighted that we're able to have this conversation. So your book is about, um, let's say, two maybe major touchstones. One is the memorandum, the famous memorandum from 1925 of the um, Tropical Advisory Committee on Education in Africa or in British Africa. And the other is the opening and then the initial experience of Achimoto School a few years later in 1927. Right. Before we talk about these two uh, maybe pillars of, of your book and of the period, maybe you want to give us a sense of the you know, immediate post-war, post-World War I context, the early 1920s. And I think an event that really ties these two together is the Phelps-Stokes Commission, mm. which, which um, sends so-called experts uh, to West Africa to do a survey of African educational needs and to think about what, what, what education should look like. This is a, a commission, the Phelps-Stokes Commission, that has re received a tremendous amount of attention, and rightly so, because it's um, a pretty fascinating case. I wonder if you could give us a sense of it and what you think was its principal impact in setting up the memorandum on the one hand and Achimota on the other. Mm -hmm. Okay. The Phelps Stokes Commission uh, was the, the final act of the interactions between the British uh, missionary com uh, commissions and also the uh, the colonial office office of the British government and other stakeholders in the Britain and uh, on the one hand and on the other hand the American uh, the foundations and philanthropies who wanted to promote the model of education they developed in southern part of America. So uh, there is a kind of coincidence of interest uh, from the side of the British. Uh, they needed some externally proved effective methods of handling the interracial issues. If they apply the models they developed within the British uh, the empire, then there will be a lot of uh, uh, resistance from the colonial uh, subjects because they would say that if British brings the uh, education model for the working class in the UK, then they would, uh, the Africans would say, oh, you are bringing the inferior education for working class. We are not the working class. We are the uh, very highly prouded uh, African leaders. So that, that kind of transplantation doesn't work. And so, but still they wanted to handle the racial uh, issues. 
So that's how the British wanted to borrow the model from elsewhere, completely away from the British Empire. At the same time, Americans had the domestic challenge. That uh, they also wanted to, you know, handle the black populations under the control of the white population, and then they developed this uh, education model of vocational education for Africa, uh, the, the black people, uh, freed laborers, former labor, uh, former slaves, uh, to accept the value of uh, dignity of work. Uh, you know, the, the working lab, labor work is not the inferior thing. Uh, the, the Black people should internalize the pride of being laborer. So that kind of vocational education model, not only to train the hand skill, but also the mentality to accept being a laborer. That was the kind of education model which was uh, uh, developed by the philanthropies and uh, those uh, people involved in the Black education at that time. That, but that kind of models were criticized very much uh, in the movement of, uh, uh, you know, uh, African human, uh, the Black human rights movement. So then uh, the Americans also needed to externalize the evaluation of the Black education model uh, to say that, oh, those British people appreciate our Black education model so highly. And by adopting our Black education model in Africa, they successfully manage the interracial issues. So that's how their interests converged. And uh, that negotiation has been actually going on at various levels. There are a lot of letters and uh, exchanges and the record of uh, conversations and those kind of things between people who want to promote American Black education model and people on the other side of the, the, uh, the ocean who wants to get some idea from safely distant place. Then at the very end of that negotiation process, the Phelps Stokes Commission was dispatched. That's, that's how, so the Phelps Stokes Commission is very symbolic and uh, their report was cited so frequently, uh, but actually the uh, storyline of Phelps Stokes Commission's report was already sprinkled everywhere in the documents published by the British colonial office or the missionary committee, commi uh, councils and all kinds of uh, documents have already mentioned about the similar kind of things which is written in the Phelps Stokes report. So that's the, uh, you know, somehow the interactions of actors and the mutual enforcement of words and ideas and the reference from one document to another and still another document, that's how the discourse was formulated. I think this is really a contribution that you bring in your book to show how uh, these different approaches to, maybe approaches to education is the right way to say it, but these different interest groups in promoting and fashioning colonial education, tried to use each other 
mm-hmm. to legitimize the discourse. And um, what they legitimized between each other, and we're, we're about to get to um, you know, nationalist critique and resistance, of course, of this discourse. But what they legitimized was this, this very broad and very slippery term, adapted education. And you kind of unpack this, this term, adapted education, which means everything and nothing, of course. And you try to isolate the different strands of both reactionary and progressive thinking that are folded into this term. So on the one hand, you have progressive John Dewey, uh, Education for Democracy. And on the other hand, we have the Booker T. Washington uh, Hampton model, which um, was, as you just pointed out, uh, fashioned around an idea of accepting uh, manual labor as being um, the condition of education, which was a a site of strong resistance by people like W.B. Du Bois and others. So maybe if you could tease apart for us these three, well, we just talked about the the industrial education model in the US South, but maybe how the progressive idea of John Dewey's education model feeds into adaptive education. On the other hand, the kind of British uh, Victorian moralism, which is part of that um, and how it affects also girls and women. Uh, That's a very interesting point. The uh, common uh, uh, key idea which transcend across very different educational ideas was the uh, experientialism. Uh, The people would learn through experience. That is a common uh, basis of uh, different educational ideas of that time. So for example, the Booker T. Washington's uh, industrial education model, that one also uh, says that uh, the learners, uh, black learners would internalize the value of labor manual work uh, by through the experience of doing that manual work. That is uh, the experientialistic explanation of uh, manual work. On the other hand, John Dewey, as many of uh, the the, uh, listeners must know, uh, he promoted the idea of learning by doing. uh, The uh, people, the children or learners will be put in the environment uh, in which he or she can explore something attractive for him or her, and then uh, you know uh, explore by himself or herself, and then uh, extend the interest, motivations of continuous learning, and then along that line, those learners themselves would learn how to live in the society in a coherent manner and uh, in a democratic way. You know, you, you need to uh, value other people's interests also while you are going to pursue your own interests. So, uh, so the experientialism of uh, John Dewey is considered to be very uh, liberal idea, but in the sense that it promotes learning by doing it was convenient catchword for those people who wants to promote Booker T. Washington's uh, 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 industrial education model to Africa. Then the British uh, education, uh, particularly those ideas of um, educating leaders in the public schools. Uh, 
that was also uh, uh, exported to the uh, leadership education in the school like Achimota uh, in the in British colonies. So uh, that was also the uh, model of education which promote participation in the team sport and uh, living in the uh, common dormitory together with other students and self-governance of students board you know those kind of things are learned through the experience so that the students will become uh, very committed member of the society and contribute to the cause of the society and lead the people uh, not only for his own sake but for the whole society so these things that the target population actually are very different one uh, industrial education model was for black people to be subordinate and uh, John Dewey's uh, experiential, uh, ex experientialism is more for liberal education and the British uh, public school model was for the leadership training for the British Empire, uh, uh, the, the uh, officials, still all of them share the same idea of learning by doing and by having that convenient common keyword. Uh, that common keyword becomes something like a uh, uh, revolving door. Somehow, once you pass through that revolving door, you can conveniently connect the educational idea, which if you ask uh, very carefully, they're completely opposite uh, idea of education. One is to make people subordinate, another is to liberate them. But by going through that revolving door of learning by doing. All these different educational ideas were uh, presented as if they are seamlessly con uh, linked and logically connected. That's how these diverse educational ideas are mingled and cooked together to be made as educational model for African leaders. I really find this aspect of your work so well done because I think that it's very easy to say, of course, in a colonial context, all of these distinctions between different types of, uh, of oppression or of supposed um, uh, you know, liberatory practices, they really all resemble each other because it's still part of the project of colonial domination and colonial supremacy. But what's more difficult, I think, is to tease out the different intellectual genesis of the way that these ideas come together to form this really effective, basically mega gaslight of the entire colonial structure. And, and, and giving us those terms and that precision, I really think is one of the great contributions um, of this book. Thank you so much. So we have these strands coming together and maybe we'll, we'll move to thinking a little bit more about the Gold Coast context in particular, because what the memorandum does is it sets this kind of empire-wide framework and then that empire-wide framework is translated in each uh, colonial setting. And we have lots of different actors in education on the Gold Coast. We have the British colonial administration, we have missionaries, we have a uh, African nationalist elite, 
we can call it that way. And then we have um, a more traditional, perhaps, elite, as, as you talk about, uh, among African uh, stakeholders. And so you identify these four, these four groups and their discussions about what education should be uh, in mid-1920s Gold Coast. So when we look at, at kind of that landscape, what do you see as the perspective of African stakeholders as they're hearing these discourses and seeing the Phelps Stokes Commission come? How do you see this varied reaction? Mm -hmm. uh, one of the difficulties of uh, African historiography is that uh, it is difficult to get the ordinary people's voices because uh, they are not recorded. Uh, they don't write their own diaries or anything. So what I have relied on as a data to get the uh, perspective of African people was a newspaper. So, uh, so apparently those people who write on the newspapers are intellectuals, educate, highly educated, and mo most of them went to the British, uh, the uh, British universities, and get the. Uh, became a lawyer or whatever, those people became the, uh, you know, uh, leaders of the independent movement. So uh, their perspective as uh, uh, intellectual leaders were to uh, uh, be, uh, were trying to believe that Achimota school is going to be liberating and empowering African intellectuals. So that was the African intellectual perspective that, so that's why, so uh, I looked at the report uh, which was submitted to the, uh, the uh, parliament, uh, the, the council in the Gold Coast colony. And that was a collection of interviews with the African leaders. Some of them are nationalist leaders, others were the traditional, uh, chiefs and the traditional chiefs they didn't want their young people uh, to lose tradition or to forget about the histories of African way of living but the uh, nationalist leaders they uh, of course they also share the same view that the Africans shouldn't forget about the history and uh, forget about their tradition that's the same but the uh, 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 nationalists tend to have more stronger desire that the education in Achimota should be of the same quality as the British uh, public schools. So they, they thought that teaching African tradition is fine, but uh, most important thing is to teach Latin or the literature or those kind of things, which may not directly relate to the lives of people in Africa, but still important to be of equal level as the British. So that's a bit of different nuance of uh, uh, good education between the uh, traditional uh, chief, chiefs and uh, uh, nationalists. But all in all, they rejected the idea of giving the second class education for Africans. Right, and I believe James Agri is very famous for saying only the best uh, is mm. good enough, is good mm. enough for Africa. I wonder if, you know, I've, I've read some of these newspapers too of this time and read some of these debates and discussions. 
And one thing that always strikes me to really show, you know, on the one hand, we just, you know, mentioned that we have the British and the Americans kind of speaking to each other in this trans-imperial way. But we have the Gold Coast intellectuals and nationalists looking outside the Western world for their mm. educational inspirations. And the recurrence of the idea of Meiji Japan and the idea of Meiji restoration from the you know, mid to late 19th century onwards is, is such a powerful inspiration for Kabunasechi and others. When you were reading this, um, as a Japanese, did you uh, kind of think about, about these parallels and, and, mm -hmm. and a, a kind of a different perspective on this, on this uh, binary between Western European education and Africanized education? Mm. Oh, that's an interesting question. It always strikes me how globalized the, the, the Gold Coast elite is. Yeah, that's true. You know, to, 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 to call it simply nationalist really flattens the kind of global perspective mm -hmm. that they have. Okay. Um, one thing which uh, I think interesting, uh, even though the nationalist intellectuals uh, were so much informed of the, uh, the news in Asia, you know, uh, Japan, Russia, war, all kinds of things are reported in the newspaper and they pr and praise the Japanese as yellow uh, people uh, uh, combated against the Russian and beated them. And, uh, and they, they praise that Japanese is the pride, you know, the, the symbol of the, the possibilities of uh, colored people, what, how much the colored people can actually do. So that kind of reference was very interesting. And at the same time, I, I felt that uh, it is uh, a bit uh, strange to, that, to see the, uh, those African intellectuals uh, trusted the uh, Agri, James Agri, who was a member of the Phelps Stokes Commission and uh, who was almost like a mouthpiece of what the Phelps Stokes Commission was going to say. Uh, and African leaders trusted in uh, James agrees words so much, even though it is actually the same thing which is promoted by the Phelps Stokes Foundation uh, Commission, and that is actually the, the intention of the British colonial government. Uh, Agri was uh, symbolically accepted as the, peop the person, figure, who grew up in a small community in in Gold Coast and was uh, sent to America and succeeded and got the degree there and came back, came back here to Africa uh, to provide something uh, very good uh, for African people. They didn't question about that. So uh, that is a kind of uh, interesting thing I observed that, and uh, that was successful from the side of the British and American. Using Agri was very powerful. Well, I'm sorry, I, I may have uh, uh, skewed away from your question, but <laughs> that's something uh, uh, which was reminded to me. Agri persists as an enigma. Um, yeah. He's, yeah. He's, he's also tremendously, uh, charismatic and effective mm. 
person. So it's it's always hard to know. Um, but so so the the um, argument begins to be how to Africanize mm. Achimota so that Achimota is going to be the best of these mm. both worlds. Mm. And so how do the British um, and the Africans who are collaborating with them on this project think about Africanization, but then what is really the kind of result of this hybrid approach? Um, one thing is very practical issue. The money was running out. <laughs> you know, during the interwar period, you know, that's a, a very happy coincidence of the time when the uh, Gugisburg, very visionary uh, governor was in Gold Coast. Uh, the economy of Gold Coast was very good also. You know, uh, exporting the minerals uh, to Europe during the interwar period was very highly demanded and the price of gold and price of minerals has risen up very quickly. So the income of the uh, Gold Coast colony was very high. So that was a very happy coincidence, but uh, the uh, situation, economic situation uh, uh, in Europe, the metropole was also uh, declining. And then the war, war was about to start. The Second World War was about to start. And the, uh, when the metropole situation becomes worse, then the co colonial economy is also influenced too. So the Achimota School started as a gigantic project and many ideas were exchanged about how to co uh, combine the high quality Western education with the pride of African tradition. Now, all these nice discussions actually uh, was reflected to the practice only for the first few years. And after that, you know, those statements were there. Always uh, the school principals and teachers mentioned about those happy marriage of uh, Western and African culture. But in reality, uh, the budget for Achimota was decreasing very sharply. And then the practice of uh, ideal leadership education was only for the first few years. But then, uh, as you, you kindly mentioned at the beginning of this interview, the melange of culture created the new type of people uh, who became the leader of independent Ghana. So that was kind of unexpected, but, and, uh, but still uh, different ways of cultivating the leadership in the uh, newly independent country. So let's let's talk about about girls uh, because Achimota was the first secondary school in the Gold Coast that was co-educational. Mm. The other two were only for boys at the time. Mm. And you your book kind of teases out these distinctions of race, class, and gender in these educational discourses. So how did Achimota imagine the role of girls in, in its educational process at the, at the intersection mm -hmm. of these British and African traditions. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. The Achimota tried to uh, cultivate good wives of leading class. 
uh, in Africa. <laughs> That's a very strange complication. You know, they try to handle the interracial issue by establishing the score to uh, you know, cultivate uh, obedient African leaders. But uh, in that sense, there is a racial uh, consideration in the whole project of Achimota score. But at the same time, within the score, they try to cultivate the leaders, uh, which uh, is similar in some sense uh, to the counterpart of British uh, elites. So then the wives of these uh, uh, leaders of the nation has to be also uh, uh, trained in the very Victorian kind of uh, uh, female domestic supporter of the leader of the country. So those women who went to the uh, early days of Achimota, they, they uh, told me, you know, I interviewed some of very old women who went to the Achimota school. And then uh, most of all of them, actually, uh, those people I met are married to Achimota graduate. So, <laughs> so, you know, that's how the project of, uh, you know, educating the uh, leaders' wives uh, worked in Nachimoto very successfully. So those women, uh, they say that they looked at the British uh, uh, teachers. Uh, most of them came in a couple. Many of them came in a couple. So they look at the uh, domestic interactions of uh, uh, teachers, uh, uh, husband and wife, and how well-educated well -educated, uh, uh, the, the cultured people would manage the household and how they are going to support well-educated husband and how they are going to uh, 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 grow their children what kind of education should be provided for their children, what kind of, uh, you know, food should be eaten at home, all kinds of things. They learned from watching teachers in Achimota schools. And also they uh, interacted with other students who also internalized the value of that kind of uh, uh, wives of uh, highly educated, highly you know, westernized husbands. So in that sense, uh, women who went to those, uh, the Achimota at a very early uh, age uh, became the uh, partner of the uh, newly independent Ghana's leaders in industry, in the, uh, medicine, in political scenes, uh, all different kinds of fields uh, had uh, graduates of Achimota school. And most of them, many of them had the wives who also went to Achimota school. But of course we have, you know, the unintended consequences. Mm -hmm right, of, of Achimota. And I think that's really some of the most interesting work that you can do with the interviews that, that you've engaged in. Uh, and one of them is really the intense social mobility uh, that Achimota offers in the beginning, mm -hmm. in, in its early years. You say that there's, um, you know, two-fifths, 40% or so of students are on scholarship. Mm -hmm. tell, tell us a little bit about the composition of the students and the in the 1930s and, um, and and how that shapes the emerging culture of the school. Oh, okay. 
uh, I don't uh, remember the exact figure, the proportion of the students on the scholarship, but uh, uh, because of the uh, mission of Ajimoto School, uh, the school gave scholarship not only to those children who have high test scores, but it also intentionally it brought uh, children of uh, uh, tragedy traditional chiefs or uh, the uh, people in the countryside. So the population, student population in Achimota had a lot of people from north, from east, from uh, west, uh, very widely captured from different parts of the country. And they came, uh, uh, when, by the, uh, when they came, they, were not exposed to any Western culture. They, uh, some of them have never seen the piped water or the electricity. You know, so the experience in Achimota was the first uh, exposure to the Western culture and any anything Western and anything development. So, uh, but once they come there then uh, they develop their own you know community they they develop their own uh, you know so society of uh, future leaders so uh, the social mobility i think it's not only in the case of uh, chimota but uh, in many society which have the uh, relatively shorter history of uh, school-based education in many col uh, former colonies the school was uh, uh, established as a channel to be uh, to get the employment in the uh, Western companies or the colonial offices. So then those people who went to those schools are promoted very quickly uh, compared to those people who stay in the traditional uh, life. So then this new group of people who got the chance of getting cash income and getting employment in the Western uh, community and speaking English or French, they would shape uh, the new group of uh, uh, you know, new leaders who is going to dominate many you know, benefits and uh, many opportunities. So the first generation who had the chance of going to Achimota or who had the chance of going to the secondary school in any colonies, uh, they tend to have a very dramatic social mobility. You know, they come from countryside, they didn't have any opportunity, but because of lack of opportunity, they were, they chose to come to the school. So then by choosing to come to school, they were promoted, they got the huge opportunities uh, in the transition period between the colony and uh, uh, independence. And then, so that social mobility was uh, very dramatic in the first generation, but then the second generation after that, that is another, uh, you know, uh, the flip side of the education function. Uh, one generation is going to benefit from the social mobility, but the second generation is going to reproduce that benefit uh, within the, their own circle. So that is going to sustain the uh, same group of people to be in a uh, prestigious position. And uh, that may have uh, some you know, uh, negative effect on the dynamics of the, the independent government after uh, some decades. But anyway, uh, coming back 
to the Achimota's effect on social mobility, that was dramatic. Those people who came from country, uh, countryside, uh, came from nowhere, uh, would have the chance of going to Britain for higher education and get it, getting the distinct in uh, when they graduate and then they may get uh, a very high position in other part of the British uh, Empire. So that kind of things happened uh, because of the social mobility created by Achimoto. Well, since you touched on it, maybe we can begin thinking about what are the longer term legacies of this period, the 20s and 30s that you looked at, because you have such extensive experience in uh, the present day and in the policy space more recently. So what do you see as, as those continuities? Mm, I think, um, for example, one of, uh, uh, let me first uh, talk about my own Con, uh, consistent research interest. I started to look at the discourse on colonial education for my dissertation. And then after that, I was, uh, uh, you know, after like uh, some uh, five years or so from my dissertation, I have uh, uh, written something about the adaptation of education for all uh, movement to the national education policies in some African countries. And then in 2015, I have also published another book, which was about the discourse on the sustainable development goal and education. So then, so my uh, continuous uh, focus of research is how those uh, dynamics among the actors with different intentions, motivations to uh, converge on certain international agenda or some influential documents which uh, determine the nature of the policies and practices of education in, the, uh, in Africa particularly. Uh, so then uh, by uh, continuing that kind of uh, discourse analysis of policy making uh, at the global level my sense is that the structure of negotiation and structure of um, uh, simultaneously determining the contents of uh, policies in different parts of the world that structure has started in the colonial period. So the, uh, if you look at the, uh, you know, today, today's uh, United Nations or the World Bank's uh, prescriptions uh, uh, given to the developing countries, you know, that kind of uh, prescription is based on the consensus building uh, done at the very high global, you know, level. And that kind of negotiation uh, at the high level has nothing to do with the realities people face in uh, daily uh, educational practice or life. But still, that kind of high level negotiation determines uh, what kind of policy focus is going to be uh, you know, promoted. And uh, sometimes it is striking to see how the line of uh, logic uh, you see in one country's policy document 
it's quite similar to the logic of uh, uh, the policy documents in other countries. And then the, uh, the programs of implementation seems to be quite uh, predictable if you know about one uh, country's policy making because that there is a kind of uh, overarching framework which is agreed at the very high level far away from national policy making far away from people's daily lives still the policy tone is set at the very high level so that kind of structure persists and i think that is a kind of uh, uh you know it's not problem i may not uh, have the right word to explain about it but something we have to turn around now because the, uh, if we look at the situation nowadays the united nations uh, mechanism doesn't always uh, work uh, fine there are you know if you look at the situation in ukraine for example the united nations cannot control uh, anything russians uh, there is no sanction there is no you know uh, unanimous decision to be agreed in the united nations conference room but still we maintain that system of united nations and when was that system established it was it started in the colonial period and uh, post-colonial uh, United Nations system or all kinds of uh, mechanism actually started to take shape during the colonial time. So by looking at the history, uh, I have the kind of reference point to uh, critically observe what is happening today. I can say that uh, the discourse which we are looking at today is fundamentally unchanged from the time uh, when the colonial education was discussed. And if we really want to uh, think of the, uh, the changes uh, in a more authentic manner, probably we should question this whole structure, which has persisted for such a long time. I couldn't agree more, Shoko. You put it so, so well. Let's maybe begin wrapping up and um, a kind of traditional final question here at the New Books Network is to ask you what you are working on right now, what projects you have ongoing. Okay, well, uh, actually I have uh, different projects and uh, I'm not sure I, I can be good enough to explain all of them in a coherent manner. But in along uh, the line of what I have uh, discussed today, uh, probably I would say that what is I, uh, what I am interested in is the construction of knowledge uh, from the people's perspective. I would say, uh, what I mean is that uh, when I start, uh, I I talk of education. I don't want to talk of education as the issue of curriculum or efficiency of uh, curriculum teaching and the test scores. Those things are important, of course. But what I I want to uh, you know establish as an academic analysis is to uh, untangle how people link the knowledge from here and there and then construct the set of knowledge which works for him or her and so that's why uh, one of my research projects i am uh, i am doing now is to uh 
evaluate or uh, assess the skills of people who are working in the industry. The reason why I'm doing that assessment is not, not necessarily to you know, count the, the amount of knowledge they have, but rather what kind of combination of knowledge uh, would be considered useful by the people themselves and how that is uh, accepted in the society surrounding them. So that uh, one of the, the projects I'm doing is to capture the package of knowledge which people develop by themselves. And um, uh, at the very bottom, I, I have the same interest uh, where I'm doing another project, which is to uh, investigate the meaning of sustainability in the local traditional knowledge uh, system. So I'm trying to collect, you know, the sustainable development is such a fashionable world. And nowadays everybody talks about the sustainability, but uh, I, I want to collect the notion of uh, sustainability in a more localized and uh, uh, historically rooted manner in African, like, uh, the, uh, the stories uh, uh, told, told, uh, told by the uh, grandma or the, the ethnic, uh, ethnic groups, uh, history uh, historians, they, they have a lot of stories to tell. So I want to you know, dig into these uh, stories uh, which have lived in, uh, together with people and try to find what would uh, sustainability mean and why people um, try to, uh, how the meaning of sustainability uh, would be, would make sense in people's traditional life. Uh, probably the logic would be very different, but you know, in the traditional community, people lived with each other and the difference between human and animals and the ancestors, these differences were not so clearly distinguished, but still they talked of the uh, coexistence and um, uh, utilization of uh, resources in a more uh, you know, collaborative or coexistent manner. So I want to find these knowledge about sustainability in people's lives. So there, you know, two different projects I just mentioned, uh, knowledge, uh, assessment of knowledge of workers and the collection of stories of sustainability in the local community. Both of them may look very different, but the, at the very bottom, I want to reconstruct the meaning of knowledge for the, the uh, life of people. Uh, and that project is going to give us the uh, other perspective to look at practice of schooling and practice of education and practice of international development. Fantastic, Shoko. I really wish you all the best in, in this really important work that you're doing. Thank you very much. Thank you for talking with us today about, about this book, and I hope that we will continue the conversation. Thank you so much for the opportunity.